Hi there, and welcome to Live from the Cybert Institute. In this podcast, we listen in on conversations taking place among ministers, church leaders, and scholars as we engage issues facing Christians and church leaders today. We hope that this episode is thought-provoking and a blessing to you, because as with everything we do in the Cybert Institute, our mission is to equip church leaders and help churches thrive. Today's episode features a conversation between Jennifer Schroeder, our summit director here in the Cybert Institute, and Daniel Rodriguez, professor of religion and Hispanic studies, and also one of the deans in Pepperdine University's Seaver College. After you listen, make sure to follow our podcast so that you get all the latest episodes from your podcast platform of choice. Let's get started. Hi, I am Jennifer Schroeder here with the Cyber Institute and sitting here today, um, I have the pleasure to speak with Daniel Rodriguez, who is out at Pepperdine. Daniel, I would love for you to introduce yourself to our audience. Well, first of all, Jennifer, thank you. It's a privilege to um, be on this podcast with you. I'm honored. Um, I know that uh, the Cyber Institute is doing so much to encourage and strengthen churches and church leaders. So if I can share anything with you that will bless, that will bless them, that will make my day. Uh, I am a professor of missions at Pepperdine University. I also serve as, uh, currently I serve as the Divisional Dean of the Religion and Philosophy Division there at Pepperdine University. My area of research is Hispanic culture and evangelicalism in the United States. So I have been focused uh, a lot over the last 20 years. Uh, My attention has been focused on uh, getting to know why some churches are more effective at reaching their Hispanic neighbors including Hispanic churches reaching their Hispanic neighbors, and why others are less effective at doing that. And, uh, and so um, virtually in the last few years, but before that, probably the previous 15 years, traveling all over the United States, getting to know uh, Hispanic leaders, uh, as well as dominant group leaders who are asking questions that I'm anticipating you're going to ask, like, what can we do as a dominant group to be more effective? better neighbors and, and better serve our Hispanic, our growing Hispanic communities. So that's what I've been doing. I also serve as one of the elders and I'm on the preaching team at the Hollywood Church of Christ in Los Angeles. And no, that is not an oxymoron. There really is such a place <laughs> as the Hollywood Church of Christ. I love it. Well, thank you so much for being here. Entered in to the uh, kind of what I want our conversation to be about today. What does Hispanic ministry. Um, what is Hispanic ministry? Let's start with that simple question. Mm. What is Hispanic ministry? Mm. Jennifer, you'd think that would be a really simple question. Well, it's ministry. Most people would answer that question that I know. Both Hispanics in ministry and dominant group churches that are interested in Hispanic ministry would probably answer the question in the following way. Hispanic ministry is ministry to Spanish-speaking people who live in the United States of America many of whom, if not most of whom, in their mind, are immigrants. And, uh, and so that's what most people imagine when they think of Hispanic ministry. My research has led me to a very different conclusion. A Hispanic ministry is ministry to people um, who are Hispanic, sometimes referred to as Latino, Latina, or Latinx. The latter term isn't quite as popular among uh, church-going folks as it is among uh, elite uh, academics. But... Um, I think that um, for me, I've come to understand crisscrossing the country, talking to Hispanic leaders all over the country, that Hispanic ministry is ministry to all Latinos, whether they are recent immigrants who are Spanish dominant, still missing their ancestral homeland, or whether they're the grandchildren of those immigrants, third generation Latinos, we call them. Um, 
for whom English is their dominant language. The United States is the only country that they've ever known as their home, um, but who would not feel comfortable in the immigrant church. And so Hispanic ministry needs to be multi-generational. Hispanic ministry needs to be multilingual. It needs to be Spanish-speaking. It needs to be bilingual. It needs to be English-dominant. Excellent. Um, and so you've, as you started touching on what you um, have discovered or what your research has led you to see that Hispanic ministry should be, what are some of the um, what are some of the challenges that you see in churches because they're operating, whether it's a Hispanic church or a dominant culture church, what are some of the challenges you see that um, the churches, I'm sorry, I'm struggling with words, mildly. Um, um, okay. What are some of the challenges that you see both in the Hispanic congregations and in the dominant culture congregations um, that they face in trying to actually minister effectively um, across language differences or across generational differences or across um, maybe uh, generational differences? Mm -hmm. uh, let me start with the Hispanic ministry churches. I've, again, I, I've been privileged to be invited by Hispanic ministers and pastors all across our country to just come in and get to know them and get to know their churches, identify with that experience. The problem is within 15, 20 years, now you've got children and teenagers running around who, unlike their parents or grandparents, were not born in El Salvador or Mexico or wherever it is, but they were born in this country, the United States Americans. And they, you know, they have a very different understanding of what it means to be, you know, human in this country. Um, but if the church understands ministry among Hispanics as Spanish language, you're going to quickly marginalize that largest. That's actually the largest group of Latinos in our country are the, the Latinos who were born and raised in this country and are English dominant, but they're not the focus of our ministry among Hispanics. That's a problem. The other problem that we have that we face in the Hispanic church is that many Hispanic churches aren't aware that one of their operating assumptions is that the church, the Hispanic church, um, exists to help preserve uh, Latin American culture from one country or another. So they're here to help preserve a little piece of Mexico or a little piece of the Dominican Republic or a little piece of, of you name the country in Latin America, to preserve it here in the United States. Uh, again, their children and grandchildren within you know 15 or 20 years, they're not as interested in preserving that culture as their parents and grandparents certainly were. Uh, and so that is going to just in terms of strategic approaches, it's going to really uh, inhibit growth among Hispanic ministry by Hispanics. In the dominant church, you have similar problems. If the dominant group church believes that Hispanic ministry is synonymous with Spanish language ministry, uh, they're going to miss out on the chance to reach the vast majority of Latinos who don't speak Spanish or don't speak Spanish very well. They're not going to take advantage of the linguistic bridge they already have to that community. And then they have to understand that many of their churches, many dominant group churches, like Spanish-speaking immigrant churches, exist at least partly to preserve culture. In this case, American Anglo-Saxon culture. And the church, that's part of its, its unspoken purpose, is to help make good American citizens. 
what do you do then with all of these immigrants coming from another country? Ministry then focuses on assimilation, not just to Christianity, but to American life and, and values and priorities and, and those sort of things. So those, those assumptions going into ministry, that, that ministry to Hispanics is synonymous with Spanish language ministry, and that the church's purpose is to preserve somebody's culture, are, are always going to uh, inhibit success, minister, successful ministry. So then how would you articulate maybe a redefinition of what the purpose of the church is? Mm, that's a great question. Uh, which we had, you know, more than the three hours you've given me today. <laughs> no, uh, I, I think we have to understand that the church's mission, number one, is to glorify God. And we do that by uniting all things, Paul says it to the Ephesians, under one head, Jesus Christ, who's not Democrat or Republic, Republican, American or Mexican. Uh, he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And when we, when we start with the assumption that the church is... Uh, the body of Christ, a colony of resident aliens in this country, I think that is a great platform for starting to reach people who are ontologically really are immigrants because they could come here and say, I can identify a little bit with what you must be going through because I feel like an immigrant in this country as well. Even though I was born and raised here, my family's been here since the day we came from Germany or you know Ireland you know, 100 years ago. Um, because of my relationship to God through Christ, I feel like an immigrant here. I'm a foreigner and an alien. And so we have something in common. Um, and so I think that's a place to start, understanding that the, the purpose of the church is to unite everything and everyone, uh, not under a single flag or a party uh, or a country, but under the rule of Christ. That would go a long way not just in Hispanic ministry, but ministry in any place or context. So if, if and that, that's beautiful. I, I, I love that. Um, if you were to present that as the framework, and I think all churches would say, yes, of course, that has to be the framework of church. If you were to present that as the framework um, to a church, but also at the same time say, but I feel like, Here's how you're actually functioning in ministry. Would they be able to hear and see the disconnect between how they're desiring to function as a church that glorifies God, united under Christ, or as one that is more preserving their own culture? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, Would they be able to see that disconnect or, or understand that that's an experience that's occurring? Yeah. These worldview assumptions that we've been we've been talking about, they're worldview assumptions because they go unexamined, they're assumed, they're unconscious. And unfortunately, that's a challenge. Yeah. For me, as someone who was born and raised in this country, my, my grandparents were immigrants from Mexico. They were first generation. My parents were born in Los Angeles, second generation. I was born here as well in Los Angeles, third generation. I didn't speak Spanish. I didn't learn to speak Spanish until I was 30 years old. Um, and I, I was com completely assimilated into the American way of life. It was only until I spent nine years living in Southern Mexico and, you know, got to know people who were preparing to send a son or a daughter or a husband or sometimes even a wife to the United States of America, 
often undocumented, to find a job so they could help the family. When I listened to them and they talked about why they were going, why they were sending this person, and they began to describe where they were going, the way, you know, I would, I would get all excited. Oh, you're going to love Los Angeles, or you're going to love Houston or Chicago or New York, wherever they're going to go. And maybe our listeners hate all those places because <laughs> they're just so big and, and scary. Uh, but I would get all excited about, you know, I wish they weren't going the way they're going, but they're going to just see these amazing things. And then I would hear them describe their angst and they would describe how they see us, U.S. And only after getting to know people and, and them here, getting to where they could trust me and tell me some of their truest, deepest feelings about us, that I start to look at our culture my culture. I'm proud to be in America. I began to look at it though very differently. And then of course it, it, it started to influence the way I read the scriptures. All of a sudden I saw things in the scriptures I had never seen before because I was looking at them through the eyes of immigrants. And suddenly it made a lot more sense to read the scriptures because the New Testament, for instance, assumes that the people that are receiving these documents that we call the New Testament, uh, see themselves as foreigners and aliens in their own homelands. Um, but we don't read the text like that because of our understanding of our country, this beautiful place we call the United States of America. We have, we have lenses that color it so that we can't see it any other way except the way that has been passed on to us, which isn't helpful, especially if our goal is to reach the other, whether it's immigrants from Latin America or from the Middle East or from from Sub-Saharan Africa or East or South or Central Asia, uh, if we don't change the way we see the other and see ourselves and our country, our language, it's going to be very difficult. So how do we do that? It's like the sixty-four thousand dollar question. Yeah. How do we how do we become better neighbors? Yeah. I, I think it's it's to open our doors and become neighbors. Um, the people that brought me to Christ, eleven years, Jay and Alice Ferris. Jay just went to be with the Lord in November. 51 years ago, they brought my family to Christ after an 11 year effort, <laughs> but they got to know us very well. And they got to know our story, got to know our experience, my experience, my mother's experience. They knew my grandparents. They got to know their experience. Um, and then they just invited us in literally to live with them. We lived with them for two months when we were homeless. Uh, my mother and my three brothers, um, and they, they began to see the world differently. They introduced us to people in the, at the College Church of Christ in Fresno. Not everyone there saw us the way they did, but a few others did. They embraced us and, and welcomed us in. But it took getting to know people. You know, my experience getting to know immigrants since I come back to the United States in 94. We've been here now, how is that, 26 years almost? Oh, no. How many years is that? I can't even call 28 years. Um, the more I spend time with immigrants, especially undocumented immigrants, it's, it's a very painful and wonderful process to listen to their stories, hear them um, describe their experience here in what they would refer to as El Norte. You know, our promised land is their Egypt. And it's fascinating, painful. When I hear people describe how they've been treated here, by people in this beautiful Christian country who often act more like Egyptians. It breaks my heart because those are my people they're talking about. 
thank you for all those words. Let me just also personally say thank you. Thank you for your, your words, your experience, your willingness to, to help spread this story, to help us better examine what does it look like to integrate Hispanic ministry. Um, what, what, you know, and so maybe that's where our next question goes. What does it, from a, you know, we talked about practical theology and what does it look like to put this into practice in our churches, um, in, in very, um, meaningful and very concrete ways? What does it look like to do this? I think one, one really, you know, simple way to start is to assume that language isn't a barrier. It certainly is a barrier with immigrants who've just arrived uh, in most cases. But I think we need to understand that the Hispanic population in our country is probably very different than we imagine it. And if we just start with the assumption that language isn't really a barrier, that would help. Because then we would be more willing to have those conversations to get to know the, the people that live three doors down from us or in the condo two doors down from us, or who work in the, uh, you know, the cubicle or the office down from us, or whatever the context is. If we just assume that language isn't a barrier, that would help. If we would assume that these people are not immigrants, uh, if if we're mistaken, by the way, and they are immigrants, they're not going to be insulted. But if they were born and raised in this country, and we ask them a question like, "What part of Mexico are you from?" and they're not Mexican. And they were born here. You've just insulted them. And the likelihood they're going to come to your church has just gone down several flights of stairs. Um, so, you know, assume they speak English. Assume they were born here. You know, don't compliment their English. Well, for a Mexican, you sure speak English good. I've heard more times than I wish to remember. Uh, start there, you know, and, uh, you know, invite them into your home uh, or take them out to the local uh, uh Cracker Barrel, my, one of my favorite places whenever I'm anywhere outside of California, east of California, it's like, find a local Cracker Barrel. Mexicans, Latinos of whatever uh, ancestral country, they, they all like Cracker Barrel. Um, but get to know folks, you know, get to know their stories. Uh, they're there. If, there's a, if there is a, a, a clerk at a local grocery store, maybe it's your local Kroger, and, and she's there, you know, every day you go to the store, uh, you know, get in her line, get to know her, get to find out, you know, what her name is and, you know, and, and get to know her and, and pray God opens opportunities for you to have maybe a little bit more deep conversation. Maybe she, you know, she shares with you that things aren't going well right now. You know, one of her children is sick and uh, she's got to leave her, the baby with the babysitter. What, what's your baby's name? Michelle. I'm going to pray for Michelle. It's a beautiful name. And then come back the next day and say, hey, how's Michelle? I was praying for her. You know, just stay connected with people and, and don't expect it to happen fast. I think we're often, even those who aren't into rock music, I, one of my favorite rock groups of the growing up in the 70s was Queen. I didn't grow up listening to Spanish music. I didn't listen to anything in Spanish. All my, it was rock and roll and I love Queen. But there was a song by Queen that was real popular that I think is still kind of an anthem for our, our society today. And that is, I want it all and I want it now. Um, and I think that's our challenge. You know, this is something that's going to take time. The family that brought me and my brothers and my mother, the Lord, you know, uh, invested 11 years 
of no, 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 we don't want to go to your church. But every time something happened, when we were sick, when we needed to go get stitched up in the hospital, when we were swimming in a meat, or when we were experiencing some wonderful experience, but especially tragedies, they were there. Yeah, and you've used the word connection. And the, the kind of the thread that I hear going through all of what you're saying is really get to know someone's story. Yeah. Know them. Because in knowing their story, then you, you come to know God's story yeah. more fully. You come to see who, what God's church looks like in the beauty and the fullness of it. Yeah, absolutely. That's wonderful. What would be, and this is kind of, this is, this is not meant to be just a very kind of out there question, but a, um, what is probably the most important takeaway from this topic that you hope somebody walks away from this conversation? Remembering knowing, thinking about, reflecting on, any of those things. I think I would want people to remember that the linguistic and cultural barriers are not near as great as they might imagine. Nothing compared to just our fear of being rejected, making a mistake. Maybe fear that these people would begin to come to our church and begin to invite all their friends and neighbors and relatives. And that pretty soon our church won't look at all like it's supposed to look. That's what happened at my home church where I was brought to the Lord in 1971. It was a congregation of about 600 people. There was one black family and one Hispanic family, a single mother and four boys. That was me and my mother, the Rodriguez family. 50 years later, the congregation is down to about 200 members. But the dominant group, the white members, are probably just barely over half because it is a very diverse congregation now. But that happened slowly over time. And I think, you know, some probably saw that as a threat and they preferred to go find a church that looked a lot more like they imagined the kingdom. Instead of the kingdom as we see it presented by John in Revelation, this multilingual, they don't all start speaking English. They're still speaking their own language. You can still see the cultural differences and the ethnic differences. But what's holding them together is the Song of the Lamb. And at the end of the book of Revelation, as the new heaven and new earth are being brought down by God to us, it tells us that the 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 nations came into the new Jerusalem, bringing their glory and honor in. There, that there were things in each culture that the church desperately needed, that the kingdom of God needed. I think that's important for us to remember. And I think that is the best ending note we could end on. Thank you so much for your time and your words and your wisdom and your heart. Oh, thank you very much, Jennifer. It's a pleasure. God bless you and the Cyber Institute to continue to bless God's people. Thanks for listening today to Live from the Cyber Institute. We would love to connect with you on our social media channels, and you can always find all of our various resources at our website, cyberinstitute.org. If you haven't done so yet, make sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on your platform of choice, then share it with your friends. Until next time, may God bless you in all that you do.